Ephesians chapter 1 is where we'll be working out today, and our text for this morning will be verses 7 to 10. Uh, but for context, I do want to begin reading back in verse 3. So Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, here now is the reading of God's living and infallible word. The Apostle Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, if you were uh, with us last week, um, we discovered that verses 3 to 14 form one long sentence in the Greek um, consisting of over 200 words, and it, and it constitutes a, a, a doxology of sorts, a, a hymn of praise, and the roots of Paul's praise goes all the way back to eternity past before the foundation of the world, he says. Now, what was the reason for Paul's praise? We see it in verse 4, he chose us. He chose us. In verse 5, he predestined us for adoptions. And all of this was according to the purpose of his will, that we should be holy and blameless before him, so that in the end, praise would rise of his glorious grace. And so that is the, the foundation of the, the praise or, or the basis from which Paul's praise is coming from, and it's going to just continue to expand out further and further as he adds more to this praise. We're in the middle of this section, verses 7 to 10, we, just, we covered 3 to 6 last week, and then next week we'll finish off with 11 to 14. But now we, we move in time from where we were last week as Paul broadens this praise from eternity past in verse 4 to the work of redemption in verse 7 as Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago shed his blood on the cross at Calvary for the forgiveness of our trespasses. And that is where Paul is going as he shows us the riches of God's grace. Now, the focus of this next section is square in that word redemption. And it's really one of the most sweetest words that we have in all of scripture. And when we think about redemption, we, we automatically think about the cross and the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ on it, do we not? 
that he willingly laid down his life as a ransom to pay for our sins. Redemption reminds us of what we sang earlier, what can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? What can cleanse me from within? Nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if you're wondering, if you find yourself here this morning wondering, you know, does God really have that kind of sacrificial love for me? Or maybe you're thinking, has the Lord just grown tired of me? Can I just take you back to the cross for a moment? And be reminded, beloved, that on the cross, the Lord demonstrated. He showed. He proved his love for you. When he laid down his life for all who would believe, accomplishing for us our salvation and our redemption. Now, as we turn to our text this morning, you'll see on the back of your bulletin notes, I've broken our verses up into two easy sections. And the first thing I want you to notice is we praise God because, number one, in the Son, we have redemption. In the Son, we have redemption. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time today. But notice in verse 7, as Paul continues in this overflow of praise for this glorious redemption we have in Christ. He starts in verse 7 with that familiar in him. We see it 11, 12 times depending on your translation in chapter 1 alone. In him, in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him. And the in him refers back to Jesus Christ named in verse 5 and the beloved in verse 6 which means the one he loves. And it's an important distinction to make who Paul is talking about here, because it was Jesus Christ himself who paid the price for our redemption. And so he says, in him we have redemption. Now before we go any further, I, I just want to drill down on this word redemption just for a moment so that we can understand exactly what Paul is saying here. And, and I want to start with its definitions, because you've got several of these Greek words that are translated as redemption, and by going over these, it'll really uh, help us to better understand really the fullness and the picture of all that Paul is communicating to us here. So what does Paul mean when he says that in Christ we have redemption? Well, to start with, this word for redemption refers to paying a ransom in order to release a person who is in bondage. Paying a ransom in order to release a person who is in bondage. And so the word for redemption implies a previous condition of slavery from which man could not free himself from. And that is exactly the condition that the Bible describes man to be in. In Ephesians chapter 1, we are described as being spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans 6, 17 says we were slaves to sin. In bondage to the world system, under the, the yoke of the law, and held captive by death itself. And so consequently, man is in a desperate need 
of this redemption. In fact, Jesus himself said in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Paul adds in Romans 3, 23, that all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, all of mankind, including the Apostle Paul who writes this, does the very things that we hate to do, as Paul says, I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. And we all know ultimately what that bondage to sin leads to. Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. In fact, just a fear of death as a consequence of our sin is described in Hebrews chapter 2.15 as another element that subjects us to lifelong slavery. This is man's fallen nature. Man is imprisoned by his sin and its consequences and he cannot get out of bondage on his own. And so redemption is what delivers us out of the slave market of sin and we must be in Christ in order to receive it. Now there are two Greek legal terms that are related to redemption also. Um, agorazo and ex or out of, ex agorazo, both refer to buying in a market. The, the ex agorazo intensifies it, 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 its meaning is to buy completely out of the market. And when it's used in the New Testament, it emphasizes the price that was paid for our redemption. It emphasizes the price that is paid for our redemption. Of course, Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why he came. He came to set the captives free. And when Jesus went to the cross, he gave his perfect life for ours. He paid our debt. He paid our ransom. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so in that redemption, a very real and a very high price was paid as Christ not only redeemed us through his blood, but he also atoned for our sins. He appeased God's justice in order to free us from that bondage of sin. We, we can't even begin to understand what that must have cost the Lord. Imagine for a moment the, the sinless, perfect Son of God who had always shared in that deep and, and intimate and eternal glory with the Father before the world was, he said in John 17 to the Father. And he, he had to set aside some of that glory and, and, and all of that intimacy that he had with the Father in order to come down and pay our debt. And so the price of redemption is not that Jesus just said, shed some blood and, and that covered it. No. It's that he suffered all of the torment as a sin offering. An offering. Notice again what verse 7 says. We have redemption through what? His blood. Meaning through, through his sacrificial death. 
his death. That was the price. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus paid the price. Familiar words from our time spent in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, that says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so what was the cost? His blood, as Jesus died in our place. And by the way, if Jesus had not made that payment, we would all stand today condemned before a holy and just God. But if you are in Christ, beloved, that is not your future. For as Romans 6, 17 through 18 says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin, having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. That's redemption, beloved. That's redemption. And then just one more from Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. As Paul adds this truth as well, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, since Christ has redeemed you out of that slave market of sin and broken those chains and shackles that enslaved us, why on earth would you ever go back there and put that yoke back around your neck? He says, stand firm, brothers and sisters. Stand firm. It was for freedom that Christ has set you free. Of course, the Son says, if you're free, you are free indeed. So the person of our redemption is the Lord Jesus Christ. The price of our redemption was his blood. Next, I want you to notice the result of this redemption. The result. Notice again, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Now here's the result, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The primary result of our redemption is forgiveness of our sins. This word trespass is, of course, a synonym for sin. It's, it's the Greek word paratomoma. It means taking a, a false step. It refers to, to stepping off the narrow way, stepping off the narrow path that is found in following the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead, we think it wise to make our own path, don't we? And follow our own will. And when we do that, we trespass into a place we were never designed to walk in. But praise be to God. Because Paul says, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Now this word for forgiveness means to send away. To send away, in fact. The idea of forgiveness is is beautifully pictured several places in our Old Testament. Of course, on Israel's greatest holy day, Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement is one of them because on that day, the, the high priest would select two spotless goats for sacrifice that he was to present before the Lord. One goat was ultimately chosen and was killed as a sacrifice and its blood sprinkled on the altar. And then the priest would take the other goat, the, the scapegoat, 
and placed his hands on his head and confessed the sins of the people, symbolically transferring the sins to the goat, and then the, the scapegoat would be sent out so deep into the wilderness that it could never find its way back to the camp. But that enactment, as beautiful and as meaningful as it was, did not actually remove the people's sins as they well knew. It was but a foreshadow of what only God in himself in Christ could do. And as I just mentioned, this word for forgiveness means to, to send away. Used as a legal term, it means to repay or to cancel a debt or to grant a pardon. To repay or to cancel a debt or to grant a pardon. And, and Jesus fulfills both of these illustrations, does he not? As he paid the price and canceled the debt for us. We then, in effect, are granted a pardon because a substitute paid our debt. In addition, all of our sins are laid on Jesus and he has taken them all away. We see this, for example, in one of my favorite scriptures from our time in Colossians. You may remember Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Look at this. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, having nailed it to the cross. It is so tragic that so many faithful believers walk around defeated by their own shortcomings, thinking and acting as if God still holds their sins against them, forgetting that because God has taken their sins upon himself, that they are separated from those sins. For as Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Even before Messiah came and paid the price for redemption, God spoke of it at times as almost already having taken place. Hundreds of years before Calvary, the prophet Micah declared, who is a God like you? Who pardons sins and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his possession? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You see, there are no second-class Christians there are no deprived citizens of the kingdom or children of the family. In Christ, every sin of every believer is forgiven forever. Praise be to the Lord. So, the price of redemption was his blood. The result of redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And next, we move to the source of our redemption. The source... Continuing in verse 7, the forgiveness of our trespasses are according to what? According to the riches of his grace. Just a uh, note here, as the, the translators help us and, and do us really a great service to, to, to point out correctly that 
the forgiveness of our trespasses are according to the, the riches of his grace. Not, not out of his riches. We, we are not somehow depleting his riches of grace. It's not like he's going to run out of grace as, as time goes. Like all of a sudden his grace is just dwindling down so low that he has no more grace to give. No, we are forgiven according to the riches of his grace. And this is very Pauline as, as once again he points to the grace of God which is bracketed these verses in verse 6 and here again as the reason for redemption and forgiveness. And, and here he emphasizes a, a more than adequate measure of God's grace. He denotes these riches and, and, and wealth, the same terms that are used in the Old Testament to refer to the riches of King Solomon who were beyond all of the kings on earth. This abundant grace is not only potential grace but actual as God has already poured it out or lavished it upon us we need never to worry that our sins will outstrip God's gracious forgiveness Paul assures us in Romans 5 20 when where sin increased Grace abounded all the more. Our sins will never approach the greatness of God's grace. His forgiveness is infinite and he lavishes it without measure upon those who trust in his son Jesus Christ. Now let me be very clear before we move on. We cannot out-sin God's grace. We cannot out-sin his grace. But the Bible also makes it very clear. That doesn't give a license to just go on sinning. Right after Romans 5 is Romans chapter 6. And Romans chapter 6 verse 15 tells us what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Paul says may it never be. And so as those who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, may we never take lightly the riches of his grace. But may those who are truly in Christ never despair and never wonder, is there enough grace for me? Paul assures us where our sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that was the first section, redemption. The price of redemption was his blood. The result of redemption is the forgiveness of sins. And the source of redemption is God's grace. We now move to the second section in verses 9 through 10. We have revelation. We have revelation. And these verses are like a, uh, a climactic note of the passage where Paul says, when the fullness of time comes together, all things will be brought together in Christ. I mean, these are the kinds of verses you just keep climbing and trying to follow Paul up the ladder to the, the, these levels. He takes us so high, you just sometimes got to hold on. 
let's see if we can tackle this section because we can be here for a while. Let's just read over this section over again so that we've got it and we're clear. Also, as, as a note, I put the end of verse 8 in, in here um, as I think it goes along with verses 9 to 10 as, as well. And remember, Paul is still overflowing with praise and the riches of God's grace which he lavished on us. This is whole one huge section that Paul doesn't even stop to put a, a period. He just goes for 202 words. He says, and then this, and then that, and then this. The end of verse 8, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, um, I'll just tell you up front that there are, are two main ways that, that, that theologians um, interpret um, the end of verse 8. Um, good, faithful men who understand the word and, and believe in the, the text have two different ways of, of looking at this, and, and I'm not going to take a bunch of time with it, but let me just kind of introduce it so you can um, consider your way through it also. The, the first way it looks at verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And, and some people will take this to mean that God has given us his grace, and then he also gives us all wisdom and insight. He, he lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. Well, others take this to mean that, that God has given us his grace in his wisdom and insight. Now, in the end, whichever one you believe it is, it doesn't change any doctrine because it's true biblically both ways uh, as believers we have been given wisdom and, and insight uh, discernment in fact James 1 5 says this any, any of you lacks wisdom let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach and it will be given to him and, and so yes of course we have been given wisdom and discernment by God we we understand that and of course God is omniscient and, and he possesses all wisdom no true believer would argue with that either but who is this wisdom and insight being applied to well i'll just tell you what i believe that it means and i do think it's for an important reason that we should discern this um notice verses seven to, to nine again and, and ask yourself who's doing all the work here Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. God, check. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God, check. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. God, check. Making known to us the mystery of his will. God, check. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. God, check. God wins five to nothing. <laughs> I am a simpleton, but this is how I exergete. Literally all of the work is about what God has done in us in all wisdom and insight. 
So I take this to mean that the Lord has, has redeemed you. He, he has forgiveness. He has forgiven your trespasses. He, he has given you his grace, which he, which he lavished upon you. And he did all this in his perfect wisdom. In fact, do you know that he knows you far better than you know yourself? Oh, yes, he sure does. Yeah, you are aware of, of sin in your life, but you are only aware of the sin that, that you notice. How much more sin do we have that we don't even recollect? How many times do we have opportunities to serve others in the name of Christ and we don't even notice them? How many times do we do something that's right but with the wrong motive and we don't even really notice? How many times does pride come into our life and ooze out of our words and our thoughts and our attitudes and we're blinded by it so we don't recognize it? Consider this, if God knows everything I've ever done, if God knows every thought I've ever had, if God knows every motive I've ever had, if God knows all the times I didn't give him the glory that he deserved, the question we might have is, if God knows all of this about me, would he still redeem me? I believe that's what Paul is getting at here. He has lavished you with the riches of his grace, and he did so in perfect wisdom and insight, knowing everything about you. He's not surprised by anything. He knows how guilty you are even more than you do. And in that perfect knowledge and in that perfect insight, he has still given you the riches of his grace. So the believer never has to wonder, will God grow tired of me? Have I sinned one too many times? This time have I blown it, God? Listen, on the cross, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, as Romans 8 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if the Lord has redeemed you through his blood and forgiven you of your trespasses, he knows every last sin you will ever commit because he had to pay for every single one of them. Believe me, he knows them far more than you do, and he did it anyways. He did it anyways. Thank you, Jesus. He knew exactly what he was getting when he died for you. Well, let's finish this text up as we see in verse 9 this, this revelation. Verse 8 says, In all wisdom and insight making known to us, now here's the revelation the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So the revelation that Paul is making known to us is twofold. Number one, the mystery of his will. Number two, his purpose he set forth in Christ. His will and his purpose. So let me just quickly give you some background here about this mystery so you can follow along. In the New Testament, when, when Paul talks about a mystery, and I expounded upon this in our introduction to the book of Ephesians, but when Paul talks about a, a mystery, he, he doesn't 
means something that is incomprehensible. What he means is something that was veiled or something that was hidden in the times of the Old Testament but has now become known. It's been revealed. I refer to it in our discipleship group as progressive revelation. That as more time goes on, God reveals things clearer and clearer as we go through the Bible. That's why in Galatians 4.4 it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. There is a timing to God's plan of redemption. There's a plan God has for everything. And the same was true for God's church and the grafting in of the Gentiles. So let me just show you a couple of quick examples. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 25 through 27, this is what Paul writes. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. See how we have the revelation? To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, I've explained all these verses before, so I'm going to just keep going, but if, if you've paid attention, you'll, you'll pick up on what's going on here. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3, I also read this in, in week 1, speaking of this mystery. This mystery was made known to me, Paul says, by revelation, meaning from God, the Spirit of God. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men, this is the Old Testament saints, in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirits. But, but what is this mystery, Paul? Tell us what this mystery is. Verse 6 tells us this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Members of the same body, and look at this, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so the mystery in Ephesians is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of one body, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, all one in Christ. And notice, partakers of the promise. I mean, 2,000 years ago, if you had told the Apostle Peter that there would be a church all around the world filled with Gentiles preaching Christ and Christ crucified, he probably would have hit the floor. And yet, look around the room. We have been grafted in, and, and Gentiles are everywhere. And they are reading the words of Moses and Abraham and David and have Jesus Christ as their Savior. The mystery of the church is that the Lord would graft into his body and forever be a part of his one family, and this is revealed as one of the key themes in the book of Ephesians. And so back to verse 9, when Paul says, making known to us the mystery of his will, it's that in the church he is bringing unto salvation 
all those for whom Christ had died for, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and that the gospel is going to be spread to all the nations, and it's through the church, the body of Christ, that life, life, uh, light up on the hill, and he will accomplish this. And so we have the revelation of his will. The revelation of his will. And then we also have the revelation of his purpose. Verse 9 again, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Beloved, what he's talking about here is his purpose in the context of the redemption that Christ has accomplished for us. Which means that when you look at the cross, what you see is the purpose and plan of God. And this is what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost to a mostly Jewish audience. He said, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by hands of lawless men. What did he mean? Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What he means is the cross wasn't plan B. The cross was the eternal plan of God. That when Christ died, he was not a victim. He, he was not a martyr. He wasn't overpowered. He wasn't tricked. He did not go to the cross as one who lost, but as one who was winning. Your redemption was the purpose of the cross by which he is now building his church for the point of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is the purpose of God, which means that the cross is a place of victory. This is his plan. This is his will. This is his work. This is his son. This is his redemption. It is the forgiveness that he has purchased for us and is the unveiling of his mystery, the building of his people, the gathering of the church to the praise and honor of the son. Final verse. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has revealed his eternal plan to us. And that plan centers on a redeemer. What is this plan? It is to unite all things in Christ. That Christ is the head and everything under his feet. Things in heaven, things on the earth. Principalities, powers, all of it is putting under his feet as a footstool. So there is a, a cosmic dimension to God's plan of salvation. Now right now the universe is divided. If you read Romans chapter 8, 19 through, through 20s, 23, 24, 26... You see, you see that the planet, the universe itself is, is, is groaning for redemption. And right now, God's people groan, groan inwardly, it also says, eager, eagerly awaiting our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paradise was lost in Adam. But mark it, beloved, it will all be restored. For when the fullness of time comes, 
Christ will unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And that, my friend, is God's plan of redemption. If you are in need of prayers this morning, I want to invite you to come forward. Uh, we would be blessed to pray for you. At this time, I want to invite you to please stand and, and let us sing and worship as we praise the Lamb, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb.